from Voice of Ashan, KVSH, and MarchTwisdale.com, where you can listen 24-7, welcome to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. Today, I am truly delighted to be speaking with Josh Tickell, author of a newly released book titled The Revolution Generation, How Millennials Can Save America and the World Before It's Too Late. Josh, welcome to the show. March, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So the beginning here, why don't you go ahead and just give everyone a sense of sort of who you are, and then we'll dive in. Well, in the 1990s, there was this skinny kid that drove a veggie van across the country, uh, and it was on a lot of new shows. That skinny kid was me. So for many years, I've been an environmental activist, and I've been working for various positive changes in our economy, in our country, and uh, now in our political system. And so how is Skinny Kid doing nowadays? There's a lot of stuff going on in the political world. In terms of the trajectory, it's, it's been a fascinating journey. Last year, I published a book called Kiss the Ground, and we did that in conjunction with the Kiss the Ground nonprofit organization here in California. And the thrust of the material is really, how do we reverse global warming? Because, you know, there's a lot of impetus around climate change, and and there's a lot of desire to sort of cap our warming at two degrees centigrade. But if we really look at the the situation, you know, we have a thousand gigatons of CO2 in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. That's not going away, no matter how many solar panels or wind turbines or energy-efficient cars we use. Right, so so you're saying the reduction of contribution is not the same as the removal of. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. So the Kiss the Ground project, in essence, looks at the global soils and looks at soil as, as a potential sequester of carbon dioxide using organic farming methods, using no-till methods, using all of these methods that actually soak up a tremendous quantity of CO2, possibly all the CO2 we've put into the atmosphere since humanity began the Industrial Revolution. So if soil has naturally been sequestering CO2, then it's been doing so in a balanced state. So you're suggesting that part of the problem has not just been the production of CO2, but also the degradation of the soil's capacity for sequestering. Yes, that is true. Since humanity embarked on our mission to civilize the planet, right. we've, we've cut down three trillion trees. That's about half the trees on Earth. And we have severely degraded about two-thirds of the planet's soil. We've lost approximately 60% of the topsoil on planet Earth. You know, the trajectory to looking at the political system for me has been through dealing with these big environmental challenges like climate change slash global warming. And in working through the Kiss the Ground project, we got to the point where, where we get to with these films and books where you kind of come to the end mm-hmm. and you test screen the film, you give readers the book, and everyone has the same question. What would you like me to do? Right. I understand this information. I, I believe you. The soil is 
this massive potential carbon sink. How can I help? Ultimately, if we want to activate the kind of systemic change that we need to activate to have farmers and ranchers on 5 billion hectares, Mm -hmm. over 10 billion acres worldwide, change their practices, that involves policy. And, And cultural changes as well. Definitely cultural changes, because policy is, in so many ways, at the impact of or the result of our culture, our mindset, our media, our values. But ultimately, after doing 20 years of environmental activism and and working always towards solutions, whether it's been with Mm -hmm. alternative energy or with climate or with agriculture, I always bump up against the same reality. We can do a lot individually, and I'm the first one to say, yes, absolutely, look at diet, look at your personal actions, do all Mm -hmm. of those wonderful things that bring you joy, and if we're really going to make the big environmental changes that we need to make, we need to change the systems of governance. Well, and I think that when I hear you say like the the umbrella term systems of governance, some people would take that and and dive into the giant cesspool of political stuff. But if you take, for example, plastic bags at the grocery store, if three of the grocery stores say, we want to do the better thing and we want to stop using plastic bags, if they do that entirely on their own, they can suffer the effects of the customer who's used to a certain way of receiving their groceries, walking three blocks to another direction. But if you institute a policy, as we've seen, I think San Francisco and other places have done this, where the government steps in and says the entire city has to go plastic bag free, then at least no one's going to stand out and suffer. Yes, essentially. It's, it's collectivism in a way that collectivism should be done so that it benefits not just people, but also businesses and ultimately strengthens counties, cities, states, mm-hmm. nations, all of that. Uh, but I think, we've, I think we've really gotten into a weird mental space around politics and legislation and policy because you know, part of what we're doing with the Revolution Generation is this amazing college tour where we're going to colleges, showing the rough cut of the movie, getting feedback, and even using some of those college students in the film. So right. in many ways, the college tour is, you know, is uh, being, it's a film being used to make a film. Yeah. Uh, it's a feedback process. And in that process, what's super interesting mm-hmm. is most college students, most of the ones we've met with at least, uh, and that's, you know, not a, a representative survey by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a few thousand. Um, feel some level of I- acute disempowerment mm-hmm. when it comes to politics. And if you think about that, you know, here is a group of young people. They're the largest voting block in the country. Actually, they're the largest voting block in U.S. history. Mm-hmm. And they're walking into a situation where they actually hold the balance of power, but yet they feel disempowered. So in many ways, mm-hmm. that's, they've effectively been disenfranchised by being made not to care. It is a fascinating conundrum. I'm so thrilled that you guys are sort of tackling this. So I just want to point out real quick to folks who are listening that we were initially talking about Kiss the Ground, which is 
the book that came out, I think, just a year and a half ago. Yes, correct. Yes, and that one is actually doing something similar to what I interviewed one of the people who was managing the release and the follow-up of a book called Project Drawdown. Yes, uh, the book that Paul Hawken edited. Yes, exactly. And once again, similar to what your book, Kiss the Ground, was doing, is it was illustrating here is something that will effectively work to solve our problem. And essentially, you're hoping to increase awareness within this demographic of young people so they see that they truly do have the ability to affect the change that will allow them to survive the next hundred years on this planet. Well, that's just, that's just it. That is the big question. And in the film version of The Revolution Generation, Shailene Woodley, who was in some of the movements that we profile, mm-hmm. she asked the question, you know, now it's time for us to, to choose do we really want to take care of this planet so that the human species can survive? That's a big question for a 20-something-year-old person to ask. Mm-hmm. But it's resonant of what the generation itself is dealing with. You know, the millennial generation is so exciting in some ways, yeah. counter to what we've been told, counter to the media stereotypes. You know, contrary to all of that, it is a very exciting generation. And one of the things that I think is extremely exciting is that overall, whether millennials are registered as a Republican, a Democrat, or whether they identify as an independent, Mm -hmm. over 70 to 80 percent of them in survey after survey say, okay, we believe that climate change is Mm man-made. This is less of an issue in Europe, right. as far as you know, climate change is not an ideological issue uh, for the most part in in the EU. But in the United States, it's become an ideological issue. It's become an issue that's that's a partisan issue. Mm-hmm. But millennials, based on surveys, don't see it that way. Mm-hmm. So here you have the first opportunity since you know Al Gore kind of blew the whistle mm-hmm. on climate change. Um, the first opportunity not just to have people work together, but to have an incredibly politically powerful, incredibly technologically connected group of people cross-collaborate on solutions to humanity's greatest threat. Right. That's exciting. That gives me hope. It is totally exciting. I mean, I'll be honest. I, it, when I hear, I don't pay attention to mainstream media in general, um, and every once in a while it'll trickle down to me you know, that there's these sort of negative comments or opinions about, quote, the millennials, and and people will say exactly what you said, and every time I'm sort of like, really? Who thinks that? I mean, because I happen to have sons who are older teens, and they and many of the people that they know um, and that are my personal friends are millennials, and I just happen to feel like the millennial generation has this this incredible conjunction of all of these super, super amazing positive um, traits and capacity and opportunity and ability and insight. And to me, I'm like, okay, I do not want to put it upon them that they need to save the world because my generation needs to do its part and the baby boomers need to get a little smarter. But seriously... (laughs) I want to know what you were going to say. I know. (laughs) I'll tell you later. You can't say on radio. Sometimes tell me that. But it's like the millennials, yes, 
I know they're trying to figure out what to do with their life, but seriously, they can truly be the generation that turns this incredibly dangerous situation around. I'm excited by them. Yeah. Well, um, me too. I think you and I uh, see the potential. I think there, there needs to be some cheerleading and some sort of rah-rah. And we do that in the book, The Revolution Generation. We do that in the film. And, and a lot of the organizations that we're associated with do a little bit of that too. But I don't think that this is purely, you know, anecdotal. I don't think it's platitudes. Mm-hmm. What I'm seeing and what we're seeing as we run up here to the 2018 midterm elections is a wave of progressive young people running for office all over the country. And I'm not just talking about Democrats and independents. I'm seeing young Republicans as well who are very progressive for their party. Mm-hmm. And really, all of them pushing a totally new agenda of kind of people first. And if we say, well, how did that happen? This is so unusual. Yes, all of that's true. Part of it's generational. Part of it's what happened in the 2016 midterm elections, where you had over 50%, over 50% of the millennial generation identifying as an independent, Mm -hmm. but having nowhere to go to put their vote. You had a two-party system that essentially locked them out of the voting system. Even more than that, or in addition to that, have you ever jumped off of a high dive into one of those Olympic swimming pools that has like a really deep, like 15-foot deep end? I haven't, but okay. that thought definitely makes me nervous. Okay, okay. No, no, no. It's not, so I grew up doing this. I grew up, I spent many years actually off and on living near UCSB. That's in Santa Barbara, California. And um, so I would go and swim. They had a big Olympic-sized you know, pool, and they had a 15-foot deep, deep end with the h- typical high dive. It wasn't one of those super high ones. And what you learned when you were 9 years old and 11 years old and you didn't weigh very much was that if you didn't get all the way to the bottom, what would happen is you'd sink down to about 13 feet and you'd just stop. And you got 13 feet of water above you, and you got two feet down to the bottom, and you're not touching that bottom. And you're running out of air, and now you got to try to, like, swim back up to the top, and you don't—you have to swim back up. And that's hard. Your lungs are like, hello. What you learn is that you got to hit bottom hard enough that you can bend your knees and push yourself back up, and then you shoot up to the top really fast. So it's like they're realizing— I think in a way that this is really going to be largely on them because we clearly don't have the answers. And if we can mess up badly enough right about now that we hit bottom and we generate that pushback, that's how you get that motivation. You have people who are willing to take time in their lives to engage and to actually take ownership of the change and the fix. So I like that analogy. I like it. I, I think in many ways, look, all of the crises that we're dealing with, they're all self-created. They didn't just happen. Mm-hmm. They were in some way, shape, or form directed by us humans. And we love to go, oh, it was those humans over there in the White House, or it was those humans in Russia. You know, right. We love to say it was other humans, not us. Right, but right. You know, we're all culpable. We're all part of the same kind of deal here. It's easy to point a finger. It's hard to 
take accountability mm-hmm. for a solution. And I, I think that's what we're starting to see with, you mentioned Project Drawdown, Kiss the Ground. Those two projects are very tightly aligned um, and working together, collaborating mm-hmm. on these big, big problems. You know, climate change is, is not a trivial problem, Mm-mm. but it is a solvable problem. And what's amazing, you know, Paul Hawken in Kiss the Ground, we interviewed him. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. He's in the book and he's in the film, too. In the film, he says, you know, we can have global cooling within our lifetimes. Within 20 to 30 years, we can see global cooling. That means stabilization. Yeah. So when you think about all the fear that we've gotten since An Inconvenient Truth 1 came out, Mm -hmm. the polar bears, the melting ice, the tundra, you know, and you go, well, like, why are we focusing on that? Not that we shouldn't be aware of the problem. Mm-hmm. Why don't we just focus our effort on a solution that we know works? Stuff that contributes to global warming, climate change, whatever, catastrophic climate collapse is what I actually personally call it. All of those things have these other elements of making our lives unpleasant as well. So let's say you disagree and you, you think that the planet is going to warm up on its own anyways and we're having nothing to do with it. But still... Do you want the air pollution in the cities so that, you know, people with asthma are dying in the hospitals every year? Do you want the water to be polluted because of fracking? So you can take all of the sources of this problem and find other ways in which they're really negative for us as well. And if you can do that, you can hopefully bring more people into the fold of agreement that, yeah, maybe we can live better on the planet. Yeah. The web of life. We are all connected. We are all one. And we all like clean water. We do, regardless if we're a fish or a human being. Yeah. So you also have... I'm, all right. So everyone, I'm looking here at www.joshtakel.com, and I'm going to spell the last name. It's a T-I-C-K-E-L-L. And I love it because basically almost everything you do is pretty much here. And you have films that you are a part of. And I'm wondering if you wanted to speak quickly to a couple of them just to raise awareness for people who otherwise wouldn't know to go check this out on wherever in the world it might be. Mm, yeah. Well, our, our first film was in 2008. That was called Fuel. That one Sundance, and uh, it's, you know, it's a bit dated now. It's 10 years old, but it's still a very positive, uplifting message of we can create alternatives to fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Then I teamed up with my wife during that film, and the next film we co-directed called The Big Fix yeah. about the oil spill, the 2010 oil spill in Louisiana. Or that a lot of people would think of that as the Gulf oil spill. Correct. Right, yeah. the one that went the for Gulf many, oil. many months and could be seen from space. Yeah. Indeed. That one. <laughs> we did a film about that. Um, and then from there, we did a film called Pump, which was kind of the final of our energy film, the trilogy, if you will, mm-hmm. of the energy films. Um, and then we switched gears a little bit. We, we made a film a couple years ago called Good Fortune, which is about the life and times of John Paul DeJoria. He co-founded Paul Mitchell and Patron. Yeah, and I remember. I mean, his face is recognizable. He's been on lots of magazine covers and stuff. He has. He has. He's, he has 
an amazing story where he grew up homeless, he was in and out of foster care, and uh, became a gang member, and just really rough and tumble sort of upbringing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and created these two empires, and then is really working to give his fortune away, which is kind of amazing. So that, that was an uplifting film. And then simultaneously, we have four films that we're doing now, all of which, <laughs> all of which will come out in 2019. Uh, and one of, we've, we've mentioned two, Kiss the Ground and right. The Revolution Generation. Right. We have two others. One's called Down to Earth, about the healing energy of Earth when it is connected directly to your feet. We, we did a short that went on Facebook. It went kind of crazy viral. Honestly, one of my dreams, if I could just find a way to not worry about the raccoons or the ants, would be to spend like all summer just sleeping outside in my backyard directly, you know, like on the ground rather than in my house on concrete or up, you know. I mean, yeah, there's so much that the animals get to benefit from every night when they go to sleep and that we're missing out on. Very true. So so we cover that in Down to Earth, which will be out next year. And then finally, our scripted feature, uh, which we're just about to start filming, is called Heartland. But mm. I don't want to say too much about that. It's, it's, a, it's a story of two different parts of America coming together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. So let's see here. There are a lot of forces out there that are entrenched, that are well-established, that have been developing their strategies and their game plan for decades. And they pretty much want to continue to use the United States of America's resources, and people are one of those resources, for their own benefit and purposes without us really interfering with what they want to do by opening our mouths and participating in the system or the decision-making process, which is really what politics is about. How do we, as a bunch of people sharing space on the planet, make decisions together that affect all of us? What, what plans do you have for concretely intersecting with that system and affecting the positive changes that you're looking for? That's where the revolution generation really takes off. We look at systemic change as opposed to regime change or leadership change. And I think, I think in this country we've become infatuated and distracted with regime change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a, that's a dangerous distraction slash infatuation. It's something that often happens in the history of empires when right. the empire is waning toward its sunset people people yeah. start getting distracted with issues of leadership morality or you know leadership ideology versus does the system actually function or do we have a systemic problem hey so if I we get we, rid of that dictator or replace him with this dictator yeah. everything will be great everything but great. you still have dictatorship right yeah yeah hence the cyclical nature of revolution you know in the western world we see revolutions about once every 80 years on about an 80-year cycle. So mm-hmm. 80 years ago, we had the Second World War where we got rid of all the fascists and we brought in capitalism. And look, the world is arguably far better than it was under Mussolini or Hitler, any of those you know, crazy people. 
Mm-hmm. But we brought in a new set of problems, and now we're looking at a new set of revolutionary sort of ideas to counteract. Well, so, the, so, so do you know who George Monbiot is? Yes. All right, okay, good. So at some point as you go through this, let's touch in at some point on that concept of a new narrative. Yeah. yeah okay. Well, that's, and that's uh, where I was going as Got well. It. <laughs> is, is, you know, we have this sort of infatuation with leadership versus an infatuation with systems. And you can see it in how we talk about America. People always talk about America as a democracy. It is, it's not a democracy. Mm-hmm. It's actually a republic. Right. And it's written, it's written as a republic in the founding documents. It's written as a republic in all texts that mm-hmm. refer to how our civic system works. And it's acted out as a republic. Absolutely. We elect leaders who make decisions for us. That's yeah. what a republic does. A democracy, the people vote on the decisions directly. Right. Not that they don't have leaders. They also have leaders, but decisions are ultimately voted on by the people. You can, tell it's, you can also tell it's not a democracy because we just had a vote in 2016. Mm-hmm. The person that got, well, almost three million more votes did not become president. Mm-hmm. So in a democracy, you just vote, and whoever gets the most votes, that's who wins. That's who leads. Mm-hmm. So it, part of... Part of what happens when you have a society that is distracted and infatuated with things that don't actually make a difference at the end of the day is you lose sight of the core things that are guiding the ship. And so when, when you say, okay, what's the plan for change? Mm-hmm. The first plan for change, as you mentioned, George Monbiot, is a new way of thinking or a new narrative around what politics and policy is. It's not who's in power, because that is, that is extremely, you know, that's temporary. Mm-hmm. What, we, what we're looking at in the revolution generation is what is the structure of power? How does that structure work for the people? Or how does it not work for the people? And really, we've kind of failed to upgrade our political system since it was created. Yeah, we failed. We failed to have any major significant upgrades, other than I would argue the civil rights movement and women's liberation. Those, mm-hmm. those are great, powerful systemic changes. Right. But but other than that, and a few constitutional amendments which came very early on, the constitutional amendment which came later for eighteen-year-olds to vote, there hasn't been any real like hey, let's look at this two-party system. Let's look at this electoral college. Let's look at how we vote and tally votes. And Well, and you don't even have to change anything necessarily when it comes to looking at the two-party system. If I understand correctly, there was serious concern amongst some of the thinkers that contributed to the initial writing of our system, and they were like, you don't want a two-party system because that's going to cause all these predictable problems. So ironically, we're actually doing things that were recommended against by the people who were creating this experimental self-government system. So yes, so the question is, do we feel like we have a right to analyze, judge, consider changing or altering or improving this fundamental system because seriously, do we think that 
it's supposed to remain the same for the next 5,000 years. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, how long is it supposed to remain locked in a little golden box and you can't touch it? Yeah. And that's the big question. Is this a, is, you know, is the Constitution and the founding documents for this particular country, are they a religious icon? Are they something that we can't alter them? Or are they a, a dynamic system designed by people who were doing the best that they could at the time, but who were fatally flawed by institutionalized slavery, uh, a country mm-hmm. that had no telecommunication system? I mean, this is why we vote on a Tuesday. You know, market <laughs> was on Sunday. You needed a, a data to get the horse and carriage to the voting booth. And then you had, uh, you had farming. Mm-hmm. So really, you've got, you've got a, an entire system when you look at when we vote, how we vote, you know, the right. fact that really you only have two choices when you vote, uh, all the way down to how do, you, how do you effectively administer decisions as a participant in the republic, all of it needs right. an upgrade. Well, so that's and- where we start. Right. And, you know, I love that just suggesting to people the idea that you're even allowed to think about that is like a brilliant first step. But there's two things that come to mind. One is that there are a number of countries in the world that have similar um, cultural heritage backgrounds to our own, um, Australia, for example. So people here could maybe feel a little bit more comfortable looking over there and saying, how are you doing it, right? And um, they're doing that thing called, they just passed it in Maine. You know what I'm talking about. It's a voting process. Thank you. Ranked choice voting. So they've taken on ranked choice voting, which a lot of people have only heard spurious negative comments about and don't realize how epically successful it is in so many other places. And yet we haven't borrowed it. You know, I like um, even though people have concerns about some of the things that Michael Moore has done, his one movie, um, Where to Invade Next. It's a horrible title in a way because everyone thinks it's about war, (laughs) you know, and and there's going to be this big negative thing. But it's this incredibly epic, positive. Hi, let's go look around the world at things that are going great. Can we borrow your idea and take them home because we want to live better, too? Right. Yeah. And you know what? I, I. I like Michael Moore. I believe that we need people on the left and the right uh, to to stick people in the eye and get them thinking. And uh, yeah, he can be a little divisive, but you know, I kind of like watching him saunter around trying <laughs> trying to get his point across. Yeah, yeah. And that particular movie uh, for everyone who's listening, if you haven't seen Where to Invade Next, go find this movie. Um, it's probably not what you think it is if you haven't seen it yet. It's going to yeah. really surprise you. And well, standard of living. There you go. The same as same as or or equivalent to the United States, but with a radically different structure of governance that right. allows for greater participation. Exactly. I want to I want to go back to two things. I, I do want to yes. go back to Australia, and I want to go back to ranked choice voting. Yes. So, uh, can I do that? Absolutely. Shoot. Okay. Good. Okay. <laughs> um, so I think Australia is a very poignant example. We use that example in the revolution generation. Two very specific things about Australia that are extremely important. Okay. The first, there is a two-week period of time during elections in which you can vote. Mm-hmm. 
what's the rush? Why do we all have to do it on a Tuesday? If you've got to work on Tuesday, you don't get to vote. It's not like employers pay people to go vote. They don't pay for that time for most employers. Most employees lose that time. They lose that money. Right. So why don't why can't we vote on a Saturday morning? You know, why can't we vote on a Sunday morning before mm-hmm. we do things with the family? Makes right. so much sense. Well, here in Washington State, we vote by mail, and there you, you go. have weeks. You receive your ballot. I think it's usually three to four weeks before the actual quote single day that the rest of the country races around desperately standing in eight-hour-long lines in Arizona trying to um, vote because someone decided to shut down a whole bunch of the precincts. Yeah. So we don't have that problem. Right. That's what happens in a republic. You have, you know, inconsistent – you have an inconsistent system that that doesn't serve everybody. In fact, it it purposefully excludes – people of color, people of mm-hmm. minorities, people who live in low-income in- neighborhoods. Absolutely. So, so the first thing Australia does, two-week period of voting. Mm-hmm. You can vote whenever you want during that two-week period of time. Okay, so that makes smart. complete sense. Yeah. Not a big deal, people. No. Second thing, and this riles people up in America, but I have a, I'm going to talk about it, and then I've got an argument for it. Okay? <laughs> well, it may just sound brilliant <laughs> right off the bat. Well, it's, it, let me tell you. Okay. It, it will, it, there will be listeners who hear this and scoff. And, and before you turn this off, keep listening. Okay. The, the second thing that Australia does is it has compulsory voting. Oh. Meaning, if you are a citizen, you are required to vote. Hmm. Now, again, before you turn this off, think about it. In Athenian democracy, which is where we get democracy from, Athens, mm-hmm. if you were a citizen of Athens, you were required to vote. You were required. It wasn't optional. Democracy, in that sense, you get to be a citizen. That's mm-hmm. your benefit. And what you provide in return is participation. Mm-hmm. So uh, Australia instituted this um, many, many years ago, and their participation in votes, voting, went from about where America is today, mm-hmm. somewhere in the 50 to 60 percent range. Ho, 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 ho. To Wait, that's not true. We are not that high. We are 35 percent in most cases. I'm just talking about registered voters. Oh, okay, just, okay, okay, just okay, okay. registered voters. Are not even, if, if yeah. you count the entire electorate, yeah, it's lower. Okay. All right. Go ahead. You're right. You're right. So, <laughs> so it, you know, you know, we're talking again, a different country. Yeah. But the participation went up to what it is today is at ninety-seven, ninety-eight percent. Mm-hmm. You're fined for not voting. If you go to the voting ballot and you don't like any of the choices, you can vote abstention. Sure. Of Say, course. I abstain. Yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to use my vote for anybody. Yeah. That's allowed. But it creates a different national conversation mm-hmm. because the entire system, instead of being organized at excluding voters, which our system basically is, it, it, has, to, it has to self-organize at ensuring that everybody gets to the polling station because right. the system requires it. So just from a systemic point of view... You, as the system, are now accountable for making sure your citizens get there, do the thing, and get home. That's right. a totally different context for, for participation. Hence the fact 
Now, here's the think about this, millennials. <laughs> of the industrialized world, when we survey industrialized economies, Western economies, in almost every single Western economy, household median income for millennials is sliding backwards, meaning mm-hmm. you will make less money as a millennial in a Western country next year, on average, than you did this year, mm-hmm. and so forth and so on. Meanwhile, median income for baby boomers and silent generation is going up. So that's a wealth transfer. You've got now a service economy, which is largely two-thirds millennials, 60% of whom are making minimum wage, in all sorts of ways, shapes, and forms, from cooking and cleaning to nursing care and so on. They're servicing the older generation. So it's allowed the older generation to hold on to and aggregate wealth. The only country in which that's not happening and which millennials' income is increasing ahead of baby boomers is Australia. Consequently, Australia has the highest minimum wage in the Western world. Yes. So here we go. Like, what does participation look like? It, okay, Australia's got plenty of problems. We could, we could have a whole hour show about all their issues. But this you know, conversation is just about systemic change right. and pieces of systems that are working. And when you look at the Australian system that requires compulsory voting, what you find is the standard of living for young people is getting better, whereas in the United States, it's not. What this also highlights, I think, is in this culture, people talk about countries like Denmark, Iceland, Sweden, Netherlands, whatnot, and they call them socialist democracies. And uh, initially, I used that term when I would write about what was going on during my travel because it was something that people understood. And then eventually I realized that in America, like the most recent election in the state of Washington, which is a fairly engaged state, we hit about 24% people voting, right? And it hit me that if you are in a country like ours where basically people are not voting, then that means that the policy decisions are not being made by the people. They're being made by the small little cluster of people who have managed to grasp power and they're making changes that they like, but our will is not reflected in those new policies. When you talk to everyday average people in what we call successful socialist democracies, they have a completely different sense of ownership. And they also have usually a high 70 to mid 80% voting is normal. A lot of them feel like it should be 89 to to low 90s. And if they get anywhere near the 70s, everyone's like freaked out. So they're all participating. And for people when they talk about taxes, for example, they'll be like, sure, we pay these taxes, but we do it on purpose because we want our standard of living to be a certain way. And so they have this real sense of ownership of what's going on because they're all voting and participating and they see that the policies reflect the will of the people. And so when I look at what we call in this country socialist democracies, what I see is functioning democracies or republics or whatever that are successfully operating. And our country, like you said earlier, is really not performing at all like a democracy. Yes. And I think that we have to get, as a people, we have to get over the sensitivity of talking about the American system because people get so sensitive. Oh, I can't talk about the Constitution. No, I could never talk about abolishing the Electoral College or ranked choice voting. It's like, Mm -hmm. look, people, 
you can talk about who's president until you're blue in the face. Right. If you don't deal with the underlying issues, none of that stuff matters. That's distraction mm-hmm. theater. Yeah. And that's what we've been trained to do. So part of the new narrative is untraining yourself, unplugging from Fox and CNN and, oh, my gosh, this politician said that thing. And they, Look, that's all designed to disenfranchise you. Right. It has a very specific objective, especially if you're young. And it's working. It's yeah. working because we buy into it. We buy into the mm-hmm. noise. We buy into the circus. So yeah. the second you unplug from the circus and you go, okay, what's the circus tent made of? Who, who, who built this circus? Like, why are we in a circus? Like, what's going on here? You get powerful. And that's why you're seeing this young wave of progressive young people running for office in the 2018 midterms. No one cares about a midterm traditionally. But here mm-hmm. we've got a huge wave of people. And they're talking about real systemic issues. They're talking about a $15 flat minimum wage across the country. That's a, a systemic change. They're talking about voter disenfranchisement and how that can change. That's systemic. Mm-hmm. Ranked choice voting is something we mentioned before. Right. This, this is probably the simplest single tool yep. that can liberate uh, entrenched power yeah. and can, can start to breathe new life into something like the United States of America. And it's very simple. I'll explain it for folks who are listening. Yeah. R- right now, when you go to the polling place, you have two choices. Ranked choice voting allows a plethora of choices. But instead of just going, I'm voting for A or I'm voting for B, you rate each candidate. And in the very simplest form of ranked choice voting, you can rate them from excellent, medium to poor, Mm -hmm. meaning if your excellent choice doesn't get into the running, Mm -hmm. you're vote goes to your second one. Right. So let's say you're a conservative that was voting in the 2016 election and you really wanted to vote for Gary Johnson from New Mexico, Mm -hmm. but you were afraid to split the vote, so you voted for Donald Trump. In ranked choice voting, you would have put Gary Johnson first and Trump second. And if Johnson didn't go, then your vote would have gone to Trump. Same thing if you were progressive and you wanted Mm -hmm. to vote for Jill Stein, but you were afraid to split the vote, so you voted for Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. You would have voted for Stein. You would have given her the first position and Clinton the second position. And if Stein didn't go, which she didn't, your vote would have defaulted to Clinton. Right. So it allows a plurality of parties and a plurality of people. And what it really does is it breaks the two-party system and allows for America to have a viable third party. Well, there's those certain, there's the um, lesser of two evils is one of those concepts that comes along and bothers us. And then there's the splitting the vote concept. So there's these ways in which the two-party system has put people into a corner where they can choose between two bad options and what they really want feels like something that they can't go for because it's going to somehow lead to something bad happening. And so they, they've really got people backed into corners in multiple ways. And yeah, the, the ranked choice for it, there's nothing damaging, wrong or negative about it. There's nothing that we lose. All we gain, and this is, I'll use this example. Um, I was the lead area caucus coordinator on Vashon Island in 2016. And we have 10,000 people on the island. We ended up with almost 2,000 people who came to the one venue and participated in the caucus. It was huge. And in general, 
we went something on the island like 83% of people wanted Bernie Sanders who came to the caucus. But almost all of the people who spoke in favor of um, during the caucus, caucusing on behalf of Hillary Clinton, they had two reasons. One, they simply wanted a woman in the White House. Okay, I understand that. The other reason given was they were worried that Bernie Sanders wasn't didn't have a chance, that even though they loved him and preferred him and wanted him, they didn't think he could actually make it into the White House. And so they felt like they wanted to vote for Hillary, right, you know, because that would somehow be maybe a safer bet of preventing Trump from getting in or whatever. But in ranked choice voting, they could have all voted for who they really actually wanted. I love Bernie Sanders. I'm going to give him my number one vote, knowing that if he doesn't pull off enough support from my fellow people, then my second choice was Hillary. So you're protected. You're, you don't lose anything, and you gain so much. And yet, we don't have this instituted yet in the country. Why not? I think because the political parties definitely don't want to actually empower the people. Oh, it's, it's, it's look, if you're an entrenched, powerful politician— or, or business that relies on entrenched politicians, uh, which, look, let's face it, the businesses that are not necessarily in the favor of people, fossil fuels, etc., mm-hmm. they rely on, on politicians that have been there a long time. Right. Those cozy relationships. So this new system, this ranked choice system, is terrifying mm-hmm. because it's going to redistribute power. But the thing is, you can't stop a great idea. And we've, we're seeing ranked choice voting now. It's, it's been used in something like over 12 cities in the U.S. Mm-hmm. States are starting to look at adopting it on the state level. We know it works. It works overseas. And mm-hmm. so what I tell college students is, not only is this a great tool, why don't you start practicing it now right. for your student union elections? Mm-hmm. Let's get the next generation comfortable with using this and in two or three years when they get out of college and they go to vote, they're going to be like, where's my ranked choice voting ballot? I'm yeah. going to change the system. How about high schools? High schools. Why high not? Schools, Let's do it. Right? You know, when they yeah. run for their student body president and all that. I mean, like, exactly. Because people are, for lack of a better word, we are creatures of habit or we are creatures of familiarity, right? And if, if um, you get us really comfortable with a certain way of doing it, even if what we're comfortable with is super bad for ourselves, we will oftentimes just stick with the normal. Hence sugary drinks filled with caffeine and other chemicals that were pushed onto us as children that we crave as adults. So let's do the opposite. And we know that people who vote in their first election, as soon as they are eligible, are more likely to become lifetime voters. Mm-hmm. And, and, and really, look, you know, people, they're either on one side of the spectrum or the other with this stuff. They're, oh, the United States is broken. We can never fix it. Mm-hmm. Or, all we have to do is get those bad leaders out of office. And if we take a more measured approach, what we find is the United States is an incredibly dynamic system of governance. We have over 500,000 elected officials in this country. That's more elected officials per capita than any other country in the world. And it's not just what people think of as government politics. We're talking utilities. We're talking, you know, all sorts of, yes, 
all Attorney sorts of generals, aspects. You know, yes. Yeah, your local school board commissioner. Right. You know, we have a system that was designed from its inception to be flexible, especially in times of great change. And so, you know, it's very simple. We should begin to use this system as it was designed to be used. Go back go. to the roots. Why was it designed to be flexible? Because the founding, the founding people were pretty clear that in a couple of hundred years, everything would be different. Mm-hmm. So, you know, time to, time to upgrade the system. Yeah, I think it's sort of uh, it's a little bit like writing a novel, actually, um, when you're looking at your plot points, which are the the basic skeletal structure of almost every successful um, novel out there includes these certain sort of things that happen along the way. And they're very, very much predictable and identifiable in storylines. And one of the things is called a pinch point. And a pinch point, there's, there's a plot point, like you'll have a... Um, a certain point where you suddenly realize what the real problem is that the character is facing. It becomes very clear. And those are then followed usually by these things called pinch points. And that's where it just it just ratchets up the tension a little bit. It just makes it that much more crucial that something does or does not happen or whatever. So if you look at the government system of the United States of America – and you consider it to be sort of like a really complicated engine machine like you're talking about. There are certain, you know, maybe your truck is still going to operate if this is loose and that's leaking oil and and over here this is a little bit, you know, the timing belt's a little worn out, but it's still functioning. You can have all these things that are not quite perfect, but there's certain things that if you either blow them or if you fix them, it's going to have a really noticeable effect on how the engine runs. So if we can change, for example, if if we had ranked voting, and I think it's a great idea to say to the millennial generation, young people, no, I don't expect you to fix the federal government in the next five years, but you live in a city and your college is in that city and you have a lot of organization between college students. And there are all these city officials and people who are being elected who are within a 30-mile radius of where you live and are learning about the world. Why don't you guys go ahead and say to the people in your local district, we want to adopt, for example, ranked choice voting. We want to become the norm in this area. So every person growing up here, when they move elsewhere in the world, scratches their head and says, why aren't you doing this? I grew up doing this. It works great. You know, that's something that a bunch of college students could say, we're the, uh, what do they call that? We're class of 2024, and it's 2020, whatever it would be, right? And by the end of our four years of being at this university, we want to have achieved this goal. You know, I mean, that's doable. That's actually doable and would be such a very brilliant experience to have. Sure, you can sit in classes and read books and learn stuff. That's great. But if you can affect that type of concrete change in the real world surrounding your university, that is a great thing to put on your resume. Yeah. Yep. All of the all of the big issues we see are, as you said, fixable and the young generation has within its reach the power to do these fixes and upgrades. It's not that hard. Take a little time, take a little energy, but the results will be profound. Yeah. And the results of not doing it, equally profound. Yeah. So that's where we are. 
time to do something. Yeah, do cool stuff. Real quickly, is it true, my memory, that you have been working with Tulsi Gabbard and have some like videos with her where she's talking about some of these um, points that are coming up with relationship to the book? Yes. Okay. Uh, Tulsi did uh, an amazing interview for the book and the film originally, mm-hmm. uh, or I should say Representative Gabbard. Um, <laughs> and then we just did another one, a special sit-down interview, mm-hmm. and put that up on Facebook. That is super great mm-hmm. because it's super intimate. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. You guys, everyone listening should watch the interview, uh, get a sense of this incredible woman I wouldn't be surprised if we see a Tulsi ticket either mm-hmm. in 2024 or 2028. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't think she's ready for a 2020 as far as I don't think she probably really wants to go through that that soon to now. But I remember thinking that the best ticket of 2020 that I think would have truly, truly just delighted the country would have been a um, – Tulsi for president with Bernie Sanders announced initially as her VP choice. Because I think the beauty of him saying, as a man, I am happy to be the VP to the first woman president and her as such a brilliant choice for um, having so much experience personally in the military, you know, and being able to see that side of things. But I just thought, wow, that would be such a beautiful ticket in 2020. Well, you know, Anything can happen. It really is. The future is wide open. I think we are going to see a Tulsi, if not Tulsi, a Tulsi-type person uh, successfully run that race mm-hmm. within the next two or three races. Yeah. Yeah, well, we have to. So I want you right now real quick to make sure our audience knows exactly, because saying go to Facebook is not going to work for like pretty much 80% of the people over 50. And I and my my island has an average um, age of fifty five. So, how are people supposed to find the interview with Tulsi? Okay, great. So, type in facebook dot com backslash eco dude e c o d u d e. That's my Facebook page. Facebook dot com backslash eco dude and the the Tulsi video is there. Beautiful, beautiful. And this, everyone, if you um, if you forget that or you didn't write that down because you're keeping both hands on the steering wheel, thank you very much. Um, you can go to marchtwisdale.com, which is a little bit easier to remember, and just go ahead and, and check this out. It'll be there. I'll make sure I include the link to that video um, right underneath Josh DeKell's bio um, on his podcast, the podcast version of this um interview. Okie doke, folks. So that's where you've got your backup. Wow, Josh. Hi, I've really enjoyed talking with you today. Likewise. And and uh, so excited that uh, your listeners have given us this time to sort of pontificate on these important issues. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is that, that it's so important to know you're not alone and to hear other people saying what you're thinking. And I truly believe in the bell curve of society, that the vast majority of us are in the middle with very, very, very similarly shared values and goals, and that it is just this illusion curated by an intentionally divisive media machine that tries to convince us that we are all categorically opposed to each other and that we're off in these, you know, 
extreme directions and that we can't find middle ground. Most of us are very close to each other in our views, goals, and opinions. I agree. We're, we're, we're not that far off. No. We really aren't. Yeah. Nope. Okay, so for those of you who missed a portion of the show, all episodes of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose can be found at marchtwisdale.com on the podcast page. A guaranteed opportunity to hear from writers who hope to inspire positive social change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time. Josh DeKell, thank you again very much. March, thanks for having me. Absolutely. <laughs> 